Welcome to Cloud Talk. My name is Jeff Deverter. Now, if you're a student of the show, you know that normally in this front section, we've got a quote from something that our guest has shared. Well, not today. Today is a little bit special and a little bit different. You see, it marks the end of our first season of Cloud Talk. And so what I've done for you is I've gone back and I've pulled out some of our best moments from some of the 30 different episodes that we created for you here in 2020. Now, I really hope that you're going to enjoy this. I, we had a great time putting all of these together and a great time recording them throughout the year. And I want to thank you for sticking with us, those who have been around from the beginning and those who are just discovering it. Uh, I want to let everybody know we'll be back for our second season coming in the beginning of January. Now, we have got some uh, rerun episodes we'll put out in between, so you've got that to look forward to. But in the meantime, for today, what you've got is some of the best moments from 2020. I hope you enjoy it. The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking the sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world, we like to celebrate the lone genius, but I'm just going to tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on. Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff Deverter. Well, as I pondered what would be the right episode to start this with, I thought, what better place to go than right back to the very beginning? That first episode featured Tolga Tarhan, at the time was leading our AWS practice, now he's Rackspace's corporate CTO, and we had a pretty incredible conversation all around containers. Check this out. Sure. So yeah, so the idea of a, of a service mesh is to kind of take four four challenges with microservices and, and bring them together into a unified solution. And the four challenges are service discovery. So how does one service find another service it depends on? Routing and load balancing would be the second one. How do you sort of, how do I know which instance of a service to send a message to and how do I balance that load? Then you have sort of security and service identity. So how does one service authenticate itself to another service in a way that doesn't assume the network layer is trusted? And then the final one is sort of metrics and analytics, being able to um, gather metrics that have insight across the 10 microservices that might be involved in one request. Great way to break that down. And so while there, while there, aren't necess there isn't necessarily a single you know, vendor or, or, or company that's winning in that space from how that, that happens, there are a couple of, of leaders. HashiCorp's got some stuff out there. STO's got some out there. Any that, that ring true for you or you've seen some good examples with? No, I mean, I think you know, Amazon has their, has their app mesh product. That's one option. You've, you do have Istio, as you said, that was developed by Lyft and has a lot of industry backing behind it. And you have Linkerd, which is a CNCF project, which is the same foundation that runs Kubernetes as a project. And so I think, I think those are all worth looking at. Unlike um, the container space or where Kubernetes has clearly emerged as a leader, I'm less convinced that we've seen that here. Agreed. Well, you brought up you know what Amazon is doing from a container perspective, talking about their mesh capabilities. But let's talk about Bottle Rocket really quick because that's been an interesting thing that's in preview right now. Tells you know it's it's a, a Linux OS that's just meant to run containers. It's just got the core of what it's got. Do you have any experience with it, or or can tell us a little bit more about Bottle Rocket? Yeah, I, I haven't gotten to get hands on with it yet. Um, I, I would very much like to, but but Bottle Rocket essentially is yeah that kind of stripped down minimal operating system distribution 
that was built for containers. And so it doesn't, it assumes that there's nothing running on the instance but the agents that manage containers and the containers themselves. Like the other recent Amazon sort of Amazon Linux releases, it comes with a guaranteed period of support where Amazon will continue to provide updates to the image. And it integrates really well with Amazon's container management products to, to kind of make this more seamless. If you think about it, you don't really want to even think about the operating system when you're deploying Kubernetes. So why not give you an operating system that doesn't need to be considered? That's fantastic. Good stuff. Well, containers, uh, obviously uh, a huge aspect of a company's move to the cloud uh, and just really change in methodology. You know, we can say move to the cloud, but the reality is it's just change in methodology because as you mentioned before, containers run quite well on a desktop. Now to do it at scale, you need you need a little more muscle behind it, but fascinating way that it's being used. So as we start to wrap this up, um, I do want to chat a little bit. We're recording this right now in a time where everybody does everything from home. COVID-19 is, you know, working its way through the world. And just as all things from a technology perspective are changing the way business runs, technology has really had a chance to stand up in this time where we're all locked at home. Um, and I just thought maybe I'd ask you, what ways have you seen technology really assist during this time? So, you know, some some positive aspects there. Yeah, I mean, clearly the connectedness that we have with all the video conferencing has been the most notable thing. So if we think about this same incident 10 years ago, I think there would be a much deeper sense of isolation for people that they would, you know, there was obviously we had video conferencing 10 years ago, but it was more limited to sort of enterprises and in many cases had specialized gear involved. You look now and everyone's got the bandwidth, everyone's got the cameras at home, everyone's got, this is like an easy thing to hop on. And, and there's a dozen different tools and a bunch of those vendors have come out and done really good things for the world by allowing educational institutions and nonprofits and others to, to use these video conferencing platforms to keep people connected. I mean, just a few minutes ago, my own daughter was on a Zoom with her teacher. That's an incredible thing that I don't think anyone would have thought of or maybe would have thought of it, but wouldn't have imagined it being real 10 years ago. Uh, so true. I, I, my son goes to a small private school and I was talking to his, the headmaster a couple of weeks ago, or actually about a month and a half ago when this was kind of starting. And I said, do you realize that you have the opportunity to really just run your schedule as you, as you run it? And, you know, his teachers at that point weren't necessarily prepared for it. But again, just like you said, a week ago, he was on with his iPad, with his teacher, doing some math homework, sharing his screen, showing his, his work, and they were able to work through that problem without any problem. And you know, what Jeff, that brings up, Jeff, is you've, what I'm also seeing, though, are those enterprises that were kind of unprepared for this, that, that had never imagined work from home. And in fact, I think you see this most in enterprises that assume that there's such a compliance and security and privacy burden, think like a financial institution, where they yes. don't want people working from home because they don't want data to leave their, their four walls. I think those companies are now having to rethink that pretty pretty significantly. And I think it'll have an impact well beyond the current crisis to where the idea that physical location is how you secure information and ensure privacy, I think that idea is going to largely be gone after this. And we're going to find other technology approaches to privacy and security. Ah, the intricacies of digital transformation and the technologies that surrounds it. That was a great conversation with Tolga. He showed up a few times this year. Now also, I got a chance to visit with the Rackspace CEO, Kevin Jones, and have a conversation that made its way towards how he and his management team dealt with the COVID-19 pandemic. 
a pandemic like this is very unusual. It's mm-hmm. difficult to plan for, right? It's difficult, but sure. not impossible to mm-hmm. plan for, right? You know, when I, you know, look at COVID-19, if I just take a little bit of a step back, this is actually the second time in my life I've experienced a pandemic. Really? Yes. So just to tell you a little story, I actually lived in Asia 10 years ago when I was running the Asia Pacific and Japan business for HP services. I lived in Asia right during the uh, H1N1 pandemic. That was swine flu. Incredible. Right? Yeah. So I actually contracted H1N1. So I contracted the disease. Wasn't the most fun I've ever had, but uh, <laughs> you know, I got over it in a week. It was not a big deal for me. But what I did actually learn a lot was how pandemics move across geographies and the effects of quarantining, right? So I learned a lot about that. Never, ever thought I would use that knowledge again. I thought that was just, you know, one of those experiences. Yeah. But yeah, like you said, here comes, you know, fast forward 10 years later, I'm at Rackspace, January, actually December, we started to see reports of COVID-19 in China. And then we immediately jumped on this at Rackspace, right? My antenna was up already. I was very concerned about this. Details matter. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, we actually started work from home testing in different locations around Rackspace, around the world. We actually started that in January so that we had to make sure that our systems would operate, right? If we did have to go, you know, work from home fully or almost fully, we had to make sure we can still run the business, right? So we started testing this really early, very proactive about it. So by the time that early March came, we were ready to pull the trigger and go full work from home with the exception of just some very critical number of frontline rackers that continue to do a great job in our data centers, et cetera. So we're ready to go. I was pleased that we acted early. And look, the transition was fantastic. Mm -hmm. You know, it was amazing. What are the results? Look, the results are, were great. You know, our Rackspace team was so agile and we went to work from home without a hitch. 125,000 customers, no disruption to their operations whatsoever. Wow. All of our technology, all of our systems worked brilliantly, and our rackers were amazing in their ability to transition to really a whole new business model, right? Mm-hmm. Complete work from home. It was just fantastic. And look, the thing that I wanted to make sure was that we managed this company with discipline that we did it calmly and we did it thoughtfully, right? That was why we put this five-point management system in place during COVID-19. And we continue to manage the company like this today. Right. So so actually what you've done is enhanced the existing management system with a crisis management system. That's right. Exactly. What is that? What are the hallmarks of it? What are those five points? Yeah. So, you know, let's just kind of go through it. So, you know, basically, you know, what we did is I said, look, We need to make sure that, like you said, we've got kind of this crisis level management system. We want to be alert and we don't want to be surprised by by anything. So, you know, we basically decided, all right, what are the top priorities for the company in handling this crisis? Number one, by far, is racker wellness. So making sure that our rackers stayed safe and healthy was by far the number one priority. So that was our first part of the COVID-19 management system. We put Holly Wyndham in charge of that as our chief people officer. Operational excellence was number two, making sure our customers' businesses continue to operate. Our COO, Sobroto, is in charge of that part of the management system. Customer outreach, this is a huge opportunity for us to reach out to customers, make sure they knew they were going to be okay, 
make sure they knew that Rackspace was still open for business, we're still operating. So customer outreach was really split amongst our three regional leaders. Financial stress testing, and this is all about, you know, making sure that, you know, we weren't sure exactly what customers' impacts were going to be to their business. So we needed to make sure that we stayed on top of that. So Dustin uh, CMAC, our CFO, is in charge of financial stress testing. And this basically means we monitor the situation every day. We monitor the cash coming into the company, monitor our customers' business situation so we can take any revenue or expense actions if necessary. And then the final one was communications. So communications is very important. My goal was to over-communicate during this time. We set up the weekly manager calls. We did all employee, all racker calls, chats, emails, videos. Amanda, our chief marketing officer, is in charge of that. I thought it was fascinating how this tight management system that Kevin and the team had put together to help transform and operate Rackspace was still malleable enough to be able to bend and to adapt to situations like a pandemic. Well, now, next I had a conversation with Peter Coffey. Now, Peter's an executive over at Salesforce, and our conversation focused on the value of the individual inside of an organization and how best to, well, organize their work and their goals and ultimately how they're measured. Take a listen. I know a few people whose middle managers have been the obstacle to a more flexible work from home policy because they feel that if I can't see people in their seats, I don't know that they're working. At Salesforce, we have a thing called V2MOM for visions, values, methods, obstacles, measures. It's a thing we do every year as a company and as individuals. Everyone in the company has a written statement that they agree on with their manager and review several times a year that says, look, this is why I think my job exists. These are the values that are going to constrain how I pursue it, but these are the methods I'm going to execute, the obstacles I might encounter, and the measures, crucially, the measures by which I want to be judged. And it never occurred to me before a few months ago that that framework made going to a work-from-home model so much more straightforward for us because we never had V2 moms in which someone said, my measure is my number of hours at my desk, ever. What are the measurable outcomes you're going to achieve? And once that's agreed upon, whether you're doing it from home or from an office or ideally from a customer's venue, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the more time I'm spending on customers' premises than on ours, the better. That, I think, is key. And so companies that are late to this party of replacing standard top-down, I'll tell you if you're doing a good job, management, and need to move to an, I'll tell you what I think my job is. And if you don't agree, tell me what I don't understand. But once we've agreed what measurable outcomes I'm supposed to produce, get out of my way and let me get my job done. And companies that can really live that are going to do quite well in this environment. And those that measure your accomplishment by the number of hours you spent where your manager could see you are not going to be able to attract and retain talent because now that people have discovered that the arguments against them working from home really didn't hold up. They're not going to work for companies that are out of date in this regard. 
Now, I had the good fortune to get to work with Peter a few times throughout the year. The guy is just a wealth of information. Highly recommend you look him up online uh, or on Twitter, wherever else you can find him. Just great information. Now, as Peter was talking about the individual and the value of the individual and the organization, how to better manage them and better, um, better grade them and coach them along, I thought it was also important to include something from our series where we talked about diversity, specifically inside of data teams, but diversity inside of organizations and how really focusing on getting as much of that into your teams as possible creates such a compelling advantage. Hey, Jeff, thank you for the invitation today and thank you for having me here. And, and yeah, that's, uh, that's part of the deal. Um, to talk a little bit of, of my relationship right here with this team, I'm the director of the data science group. And, uh, and my background is actually including some of this diversity. I'm originally an engineer. I started working as a QA engineer for a, for a while, and then I jumped into the data world and moved here to the United States from my home country, Venezuela. And, in, and I started working actually in supply chain, not even in technology. Mm. So it wasn't a, a technology company, but we were in the department of, uh, of uh, uh, supply chain. So that uh, process of moving from a country away and putting yourself into another place um, creates some barriers because uh, it's not as simple as if I want you, I hire you immediately. You will need to have a sponsorship. You will need to have uh, the budget to acquire this kind of employees. You will need to have all the law firms, all the processes very, very neat down. And the other big thing is that even after doing all of that, you will go through a lottery process if, to see if you can actually stay and get your visas. So mm -hmm. when, when you are a hiring manager and you have to think about all these things that can go wrong in the process, you become what we can call more expensive or at least you're gonna have more difficulties to, to hire these people. So the easiest path may be saying, no, I don't gonna take this risk. I'm gonna go for the safe uh, mood. And right there is where these this kind of processes of diversities get a little bit trapped or not moving ahead. Yeah. So it's, it can tend to be harder to, to go about that. And, and it can even be hard when you think about uh, other aspects of diversity and what that might mean to be able to do the job. For instance, when we think about gender diversity, you know, when we hire women into, uh, onto teams, you know, they, you're not just hiring an individual. We should never think of just hiring an individual. You're hiring everything of who they are. You know, Laura, we were talking the other day about, you know, oftentimes, especially, and it can sometimes be more cultural, you know, the, 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 the woman in the household is still doing a lot of the household chores. And then you get another eight to 10 or 12 or 16 hour day on top of that. And that can be really challenging. Maybe Laura, introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about you and your background. Um, but a little bit about that topic, about, about what it's like in, in that role. Sure. Hi, thanks for having me too. Uh, Lada Endercoms and I, uh, my background's in advertising. So I think what's interesting about a lot of us is we didn't start off in data. Um, you know, data has really become a, a hot subject, I think over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, but I did start off in advertising and then I pivoted towards data, um, getting my master's in predictive analytics. Um, my background was in multicultural advertising. So I have a lot of, uh, experience working with, um, how to, how to reach out to the Hispanic, African-American, even LGBTQ communities for, for things like, um, uh, consumer packaged goods and, and, um, quick service restaurants, things like that. 
but yeah, so my journey with data started about five years ago and I now, um, I, I started off at Rackspace five years ago, recruited right out of university and, um, and I've held many different roles in data here, including starting our first digital analytics function, um, managing our marketing intelligence, going on to manage the global data science team before Eduardo. And, and now I'm, um, I've set up and I've uh, created under Juan a product management office, which is responsible for developing the portfolio of, and roadmap for our data solutions internally here at Rackspace. That's interesting. So um, I'm really glad that you're here. It's so interesting how everyone here has really come from a non-technology background and, and ended up here. Um, obviously, data was, I'd like to think, the common denominator that pulled you 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 good folks in. So so let's talk for a second. So kind of seed into your brain what what makes you think. Why is diversity again? And one, you did a great way of a great job of categorizing. It can be anything. Just you know, age, uh, gender. Uh, racial, all kinds of different types of diversity. You know, what are the benefits of it? Why, why build a team? Because it cre- it is harder, and it can create friction. It can create. You're, you're, you already mentioned when you hire somebody who is um, diverse from you that you're picking up all of the things of their culture that's going to come in with it as well. And this can, I'm playing devil's advocate here, slow the team down. If I have to learn all about your background, how isn't that just going to make it more challenging as a team? How is that going to make the team stronger? I think it actually helps accelerate it. If you look at the composition of any company right now, especially global companies, you're dealing with geographical diversity, right? Yeah. Um, so being able to go and have the awareness, situational awareness around the different cultures that exist around the globe. Um, when you compound that with the composition of the demographic profile, be it on gender, be it on age, be it on ethnicity, that's a composition of, the, of a global company. So being purposeful about how you build that, that diversity and inclusion with a team, it really sets you apart. And what I, what I think the big benefit is, it creates cognitive diversity. Mm. The, thought, the thought leadership around how you look at things, the fact that you can take vulnerability, empathy, you can take cultural, you can take experiences, blend it all together, you're gonna have a more objective view of the world. You're gonna have a different lens based on the, on the different backgrounds you're bringing in. So, at the, so everything that you do isn't really just from a one, a one lens or myopic perspective. It's that, um, that amplification that you get across all the different mindsets that can bring a solution together. The amplification of different mindsets to bring a solution together. Has there ever been a better calling card for why diversity matters in the workplace? Well, and in society at large as well. Now, next on the program here, I've brought back a portion of our interview with Ty Hayes. Now, Ty, if you remember, is the CTO of the city of Atlanta. And boy, talk about a firestorm that she walked into when she took that job in the fall of 2019. So I walked into a city that had just gone through one of the uh, biggest cyber attacks in a local government where the city was actually brought almost down, where they were not able to work at all. Um, the ransomware um, attack and this, all the systems were encrypted and, and so forth. So um, I did come in after 
Um, they were able to get the system, the city back online. But I, I you know, walking in, I'm like, who's running this right now? Because you had a, you had an external uh, managed uh, security company, and you had FBI and DHS was in uh, doing investigations on that big ransomware attack. Um, and so it was. I have had the opportunity to completely rebuild the city um, the, from the infrastructure to authentication, to email, to just, just about every discipline in, in IT uh, we've had to tackle in, in a short time to get the city back up. Tell me about the process of getting consensus for your vision and ultimately then for your plan in, in, in this climate and in a city the size of Atlanta. Sure. So um, coming in, the, the, my first goal was to make sure that the city was hardened and the infrastructure was solid for the Super Bowl um, and making sure that we could keep everyone safe that was coming into the city. Um, and so uh, to that point, there were a lot of investments made to the city of Atlanta in preparation to, for the Super Bowl uh, from a surveillance perspective, to, from a fiber, um, all of the things to get ready for um, all the traffic and all of the sale coverage and things like that. So it was one, understanding that commitment and some of that, that hardening that had already happened, happened in preparation for the Super Bowl, but then figuring out how I could leverage that to then stabilize the city's infrastructure and start to grow from there. So we, that was really the strategy, the approach that I took coming in. What's your thought around, around how you give back and some of the areas that you're involved? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, um, I'm definitely passionate about women um, in technology, any forms of technology or engineering. Um, and so I serve on the board for Women in Technology Atlanta. I also um, serve on the board for um, a company called Pink Frog. Um, it's a foundation to support um, um, people that are going through cancer treatment. Um, I also recently signed on to be an ambassador for the American Cancer Society for their researchers, her project, where we're raising money to support um, female researchers. We're like this, this, um, this um, COVID, we, we want women scientists on this just to help solve for some of this. So um, definitely do a lot there, but then I'm so passionate about kids. Um, okay. I grew up in inner city Atlanta, um, I benefited from a lot of that programming that provided exposure um, and mentorship. And so it's important to me that um, I do the same. I think it's important that you give back and you make yourself available. So I've been optioned off recently um, to <laughs> mentorship programs. Like I said, I won't be auctioned off to, to, to vendors and all that kind of stuff, but um, I definitely will do it to be able to provide coaching uh, to, to young girls, young women that are interested in this field and just tell my story and finding that balance, being a mom, being a wife, um, leading a city, it's all a lot. And so just being able to provide that balance. What a powerful example, Ty, is not only to those young women who she mentors and coaches, but well, to the rest of us, that while it's important to go after your career with all of the excellence that you have, uh, but it doesn't mean you have to give up what you're doing with your family, and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be given back. In fact, it probably means you need to double down on the giving back part. Well, next, let's hear from Kathy Kirsten. Now, Kathy is a Gallup Strengths coach, and she has some really crazy words of wisdom in her interview. Right. Yeah. You know, there's, it, we're complex, right? It, I, it's in certain circumstances, you are um, playing to your full strengths. And so that's, what's really important. I think it, once we get past this 
okay, who are we? What makes me unique? What makes me successful? And those are the questions that strengths answers for us or helps us get to, right, Jeff? But understanding what circumstances are going to help me bring out the best in me is is where this stuff really meets the you know where the rubber meets the road on strengths finder and helping create a team environment or a culture where people can really live this stuff out is where the, the hard work comes in well, and so I love sometimes, sometimes you know you need people out there to kind of help you see uh the trees because you can't see the forest because you're only seeing the forest right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I, I know you may think you said that backwards no I really am like you let's look at the individual versus like just thinking about our our overall employee base yeah because we look at okay I need uh somebody who can code this thing over there so find me the resume that does that okay now everything's perfect well maybe it isn't quite perfect because now you need to set the environment so that that person can be as successful as possible with the the skill that they have by maximizing their strengths 100% I I'll never forget the moment in my experience at Rackspace where I realized everyone has a job description here but they all have a unique talent role that may be unrelated right so a talent role that maybe pulls us into the future by asking where we're going and or they might be like yourself visionary right you have those you have some powerful strategic thinking strengths mm-hmm. and so you're pulling us forward about where are we going when um i'm you know on a team there might be just people who i don't care where we're going as much as i just want to be in the trenches right now doing tons of work right like right. system administrators who are just head down enjoying fixing problems all day long strengths are this great tool to understand the teams can teams truly be broken Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Right. I mean, without, if we can't see each other as talented human beings, we're going to have a hard time moving forward together to do much that's productive. Right. We will. And I've seen teams implode from the inside. Right. And and, um, some of it's circumstantial, but some of it is just that building things is hard and yeah. I'm, I'm fortunate to work in the tech space right so a lot of the time we're trying to build stuff in the tech space and building is hard and so whenever you have a lot of smart people all working together and who knows what other motivations are adding to it sometimes i think i am i am surprised they have done as much as they've been able to do Uh, based on the unique strengths they get, they, they bring to the table, but yeah, you know, and sometimes we just need great managers to help pull teams together. So I guess teams can be broken, but I think managers can also be broken, Jeff. Well, now if anyone knows it would be Kathy, she's been in the trenches with so many coaching opportunities with so many companies around the country, an amazing resource. Now, to bring this all home in our last clip, I thought I would get a little advice for us from Pontus Norin. Now, Pontus was the co-founder and CEO of the company CloudReach, and I thought he really brought home the value of IT and specifically where our efforts should be focused now that we're in an age where the cloud actually exists at scale and available for all. In doing more research, I guess realize, you know, what I say, my, my story today is to say, look, if you're a retailer, if you're Walmart, if you're um, Sears, or if you're uh, 
New York Life, you know, MetLife, whatever insurance company, you know, those companies were never started with the ambition of building a data center. You know, no one ever started any business in their right mind to think, I need a building full of hardware and software and cooling and power. That's what we really, it's going to make us stand out from a crowd. However, over time, of course, the applications, the business logic, you know, how you run the business using that functionality is core to your business. But the underlying stuff never was. What a profound observation for us to end our first season of Cloud Talk here, sponsored by Rackspace and by Dell, who are very grateful for their continued support. Now, in the thank you realm, I really need to also call out some folks from behind the scenes who've done an amazing job helping pull all of this together. The first is Heather Ferguson, our chief cloud strategist, our our content strategist for Solve, who has done an amazing job of coordination and helping pull out some great great material for this podcast and also for Debbie Talley who acts as producer for us on all of these recordings an amazing job by both of these ladies I want to thank them personally for everything that they've done and with that we will close out 2020 now for the next two weeks you will get a couple of great best of episodes we'll we'll run in their entirety a couple of amazing episodes from this past year and then coming back next year we have some amazing content already produced and ready for you until then my name is jeff diverter with cloud talk This has been Cloud Talk. You can find Cloud Talk wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And be sure to check out more content from Rackspace Solve at solve.rackspace.com.